morning, family. This coming February will mark the 20-year anniversary of the release of the film by Mel Gibson, the, the Passion of the Christ. In some ways, the film was a smashing success. It cost $30 million to make and grossed over $600 million in the box office. It uh, still holds the record for the highest grossing R-rated film in the domestic box office history. But despite being a box office success, it's considered the most controversial film of all time. Much of that is because of its devastating violence. Movie critic Roger Ebert said it was the most violent film I have ever seen. The New York Review said, if you relish the sight of a healthy male body being systematically demolished beyond the farthest reach of plausible endurance, The Passion of the Christ is your movie. Another critic called it an extended torture episode. Nearly all of the film's 127 minutes is depicting Jesus' suffering with graphic brutality, so graphic and so intense that it caused physical bodily responses by many of the people that watched the film. Many wept. Some vomited or passed out. At least two people had fatal heart attacks while watching the film. For many moviegoers, it was the most graphic depiction of violence that they had ever seen. Many Protestants were concerned not so much with the violence in the film, but with the way that the story was told. Mel Gibson is a lifelong Roman Catholic, and he included many details in his telling of the story that are nowhere to be found in the scriptures. For example, there's a scene when Jesus' body is thrown off of a bridge, or when his mother Mary wipes blood off of the ground, or when a woman named Veronica wipes his face, blood off of his face with a, with a cloth. But even more disturbing than what the film added is what was absent. Well, it certainly reveals the physical horrors of crucifixion. The film, and perhaps no film, is able to reveal the two most important truths that Jesus' crucifixion is meant to reveal. The film was unable to communicate the depths of our sin and the heights of God's grace. If you're not already there in your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up again to Matthew 27. We'll get started in verse 26 this morning. It's going to help you, as always, if you have a Bible open and are able to follow along with us. If you're new with us here this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, we are in the middle of a I don't know however many year journey walking through the gospel of Matthew, nearing the home stretch. Our, our main diet of teaching at Pocosin Baptist Church is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we've been studying Matthew for quite a while, and we're, we're nearing the end. If you were with us last week, you witnessed as the religious leaders brought Jesus before Pilate. You, you watched Pilate's cowardice. You saw the religious leaders envy and the anger of the mob, and you saw Jesus suffering as a lamb being led to the slaughter. And today, that suffering is going to continue. It's going to escalate, but there's more going on than meets the eye. 
in the suffering of Jesus, we see not only the physical horrors of crucifixion, but we see the depths of man's sin and the heights of God's grace. That's the big idea I hope you take away from our text this morning, is that the cross of Christ reveals the depths of man's sin and the heights of God's grace. We'll see those two truths by answering two questions of our text this morning. First, we'll ask, how did Jesus suffer? And as we examine how Jesus suffered, we will see the depths of humanity's sin. And then we'll ask, why did Jesus suffer? And in answering that question, we will see just a bit of the heights of God's grace. So let's dive in with question number one, how did Jesus suffer? How did Jesus suffer? I want you to consider with me four truths about the suffering of Jesus. The first two we'll hit pretty quickly, and then we'll spend most of our time on the last two. First, it's important to remember that Jesus suffered as a man. Jesus suffered as a man. We, we covered this extensively when we were in the Garden of Gethsemane a few weeks ago, but it's, it's worth repeating that Jesus is not like Clark Kent. Those of you that aren't comic book nerds like myself, Clark Kent is Superman's alter ego. He's absolutely incredibly strong, and yet as Clark Kent, he pretends to be weak. Just a mild-mannered newspaper reporter. Jesus is not pretending to suffer. Jesus' nerve endings and pain receptors worked just like yours do. So every bit of physical suffering that we'll unpack in our text this morning, Jesus experienced to the full, just as you and I would if we were to endure it. He suffered as a man. Secondly, Jesus suffered alone. Jesus suffered alone. In his book, The, the Kill Switch, Phil Zabriskie reports that veterans with PTSD are far more likely to suffer longer and more intensely if they have nobody to talk to about their struggles. Do you relate to that? If you're hurting, your pain is going to be more intense and it's going to last longer if you're suffering alone. Now think about the suffering of Jesus. If you saw Jesus... On Palm Sunday, as the crowds cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you would think that Jesus had no enemies. But if you heard the crowd crying out, crucify him on Friday morning, you would think that Jesus had no friends. And indeed, at this point in the story, all Jesus' friends are gone. The last of them, Peter, Denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. Jesus is utterly alone. And as we'll see next week, even forsaken by the Father, Jesus truly suffered alone. Number three, Jesus suffered intense mockery. Jesus suffered intense mockery. Have you ever and walking somewhere, and maybe you're in a store, or on a sidewalk or something, and you trip and fall, and one of the first things you do, if you're not really badly hurt, is you look around to see if anyone saw you, right? Why do we do that? Because we don't want to be mocked, right? 
And, and if we're going to be mocked, we prefer for the mockery to be at a minimum. So if it's just like one guy, you know, we kind of smile and then move on. But if a bunch of people see you, the mockery is increased, right? We prefer to be mocked as little as possible, but Jesus does not have that luxury. Look with me beginning in verse 27. After Jesus has been scourged, we'll talk about the scourging in a moment. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. I don't know how you picture the scene when Jesus has a crown of thorns upon his head and he's mocked by the soldiers. Maybe you picture a few dozen soldiers gathered there inflicting pain and mockery on Jesus. Do you know how many people are in a whole battalion? 600 soldiers. This is a crowd four times the size of a normal Sunday gathering at PBC and they're gathered around to witness and mock one man. Imagine the intensity, and notice how they mock our precious Jesus. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They took off his clothes, probably stripped him completely naked, adding to his shame. And they put a scarlet robe on him. Mark's gospel tells us that it was a purple robe, leading some people to say that here's a contradiction between the gospels. Most likely, this was a red robe that had begun to fade and had begun to look purple. And, and, and with a reddish-purple color, this robe looks like the color of royalty. And they put it on Jesus, and they laugh at him, and they mock him, and they say, here's our king. Verse 29, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. When we envision the crown of thorns, we might envision these tiny little thorns that we see on a rose bush, bushes. These are probably two-inch quills that are pretty common around Jerusalem, twisted together into a violent crown and shoved upon his head. There's our king. There's his crown. And a king, of course, needs a scepter. So they take a reed something a little flimsy perhaps, they put it in his hand and they mock him, king of the Jews. The goal of the crown was to make fun of Jesus and to inflict pain upon him. But isn't it interesting that when man is doing one thing, God is doing a hundred things. So as Jesus has thorns put upon his head, an astute reader of the Bible should be thinking all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And you remember when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and God threatened them with curses and God said to Adam in Genesis 3.18, thorns and thistles, the ground shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Jesus is literally bearing our curse on his head. And in just a moment... As the cross continues, he will suffer and receive our curse in our place. The mockery isn't over. After giving him the scepter, verse 30 says, they spit on him and took the reed, the scepter, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him 
and led him away to crucify him. They take the reed and smash it on his head with a crown of thorns already there, spit, spit on him, mock him, make fun of him, put his clothes back on him, and lead him away to be crucified. And yet, that is not the end of the mockery that Jesus endures. Look ahead a few verses to verse 37. As he is there being crucified outside the city gates, the text says, over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In those days, usually when you crucified someone, you would have a list of the charges against them and you would nail that to the top of the cross. And here, here's the charge against this man who's receiving such devastating torture. King of the Jews. Another attempt to mock this Jesus. His only crime was claiming to be king. In verse 38, as Jesus is dying, the people around him are mocking him too. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the elders and the scribes mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. The religious leaders, Roman soldiers, random passers-by, even the thieves enduring the same torment on either side begin to mock our Jesus. I don't think it's possible for us to even begin to relate to the intensity of this mockery. You see, the truth is, if we're honest, we deserve a little mockery every once in a while, don't we? My family mocks me relentlessly. And usually, in fact, 99% of the time, I deserve it. I do something stupid, and it's funny. We do things like that all the time, deserving mockery of a, of a sort. But who is Jesus? He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the one that upholds the universe by the Word of His power. He is the one that whispers and galaxies appear. He is the one who is upholding every atom, every cell in the body of every person, swinging every hammer and every cat of nine tails and spitting out every vile comment. He is holding them together, and they're mocking he deserves endless praise and is receiving unimaginable mockery. The final thing that Jesus suffered is Jesus suffered excruciating pain. The word excruciating, a word we use to describe severe pain, literally means from the cross. If you know your Latin, you might recognize the word cruce. 
cross right there in the middle of the word excruciating. It's a word that was coined to describe the pain of the cross. And Jesus' physical pain is absolutely astounding. First, he suffers a scourging. Look at verse 26. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. In his book, The Murder of Jesus, John MacArthur writes this about scourging. A Roman scourge was a short wooden handle with numerous long lashes of leather attached to it. Each leather strip had a sharp piece of glass, metal, bone, or other hard object attached to the end. The victim would be stripped of all clothing and tied to a post by his wrists with his hands high enough over his head to virtually lift him off the ground. The feet would be dangling and the skin on the back and buttocks completely taut. One of the two scourge bearers would then deliver blows, skillfully laying the lashes diagonally across the back and buttocks with extreme force. The skin would literally be torn away and often muscles were deeply lacerated. It was not uncommon for the scourge wounds to penetrate deep into the kidneys or lacerate arteries causing wounds that in themselves proved fatal. Some victims died from extreme shock during the flogging, end quote. Most of us can't even imagine that pain, but it continues Add to that the pain of carrying the cross. A cross strong enough to crucify a grown man would probably weigh about 200 pounds, recycled wood. Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in the film The Passion of the Christ, actually dislocated his shoulder in one of the scenes just by carrying the cross. He's pretending. It's that heavy. So imagine... That rough-hewn, splintery, recycled wood shoved onto the lacerated back of your Jesus. John 19, verse 17, tells us that Jesus did carry his cross part of the way, but at some point, we don't know exactly when, on the journey from Pilate's house to Skull Hill, Jesus couldn't take another step. Is human, truly man. He hadn't slept all night, been in prayer. He'd gone through one false trial after another. He'd been spat upon, beaten, scourged, mocked, and now he cannot take another step. Someone needs to carry his cross the rest of the way. Who's there to carry it for him? There are no friends around. None of Jesus' disciples are near. His family is not present. And so, a random passerby is grabbed and conscripted into carrying Jesus' cross. Look at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man. He didn't volunteer. They compelled this man to carry his cross. After the scourging and the travel from Pilate's house to Skull Hill, then the crucifixion begins, beginning in verse 33. 
When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Before they crucify him, they're offering him this drink. What's the deal with the drink? There's basically two theories. One group says that this drink functioned like a mild narcotic, maybe like Tylenol or ibuprofen, and they offer him this to deaden the pain, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to receive all the pain of the cross in all of its fullness. I am not going to shy away from this. The other school of thought says that it was another mock at Jesus. Here's this sour wine, it's disgusting, and and they offered it to him not to comfort him, but to continue making fun of him. Whichever, Whichever group is right, the lesson is the same. Jesus had no relief from the torment of the cross. None. That pain is unimaginable for most of us. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes, crucifixion is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The Romans, by this point in history, were experts at crucifixion. Historians estimate they had crucified, by this point, about 30,000 people. It was such a devastating form of execution that Roman citizens typically were not allowed to be crucified. Women were not allowed to be crucified because this was reserved for the lowliest of the low. Jewish historian named Josephus said, the cross is the most wretched of deaths. A Roman orator from that day named Cicero said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The mere mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Here's what happened. Long five to seven inch spikes were nailed probably into the wrists and the feet of the criminal being executed into the wood. Then the cross would be hoisted up and placed into its, the hole where the individual could remain hanging for all to see. As the cross was raised, often the crucified victims would become incontinent. A pool of blood and sweat and feces and urine would gather at the base of the cross. Victims on the cross would die from slow suffocation. The the body would hang in such a way that the, the diaphragm would be restricted. In order to exhale, the victim would have to push up on the nails penetrating his feet. A medical doctor named Truman Davis, who studied the physical effects of crucifixion, described the end like this. As the arms fatigue... Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending, cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. It is now almost over. Brother, sister, friend, 
that, that's just a tiny glimpse of the devastating wreckage and pain of the cross. But how does Jesus' suffering, how does it reveal the depths of man's sin? If you were to watch the, the Passion of the Christ, you would probably be convinced that the Jewish people were sinful. As you watch their bloodthirsty screams, crucify him, and you look at their sneers as they mock him from the base of the cross, you would say, yeah, they're sinful. You would probably be convinced that the Romans were sinful. As you watch their sadistic smiles and hear their laughter as lash after lash falls upon the back of Jesus, you would say they're wicked, they're sinful. But here's what you will not say by merely watching that film. You will not see it and say, I'm sinful. And there is the great omission is that we can see the cross and we can see all of its horrors and not see ourselves swinging the hammer, swinging the cat of nine tails. John Stott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. As Sandra read for us earlier, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Can I suggest something for you, dear friend, as painful and as challenging as this might be? Consider, as you imagine the cross, to imagine yourself holding the hammer and steadying the nails. To imagine yourself swinging the whip with stroke after stroke upon the back of the Savior of the world. Imagine yourself finding long, sharp thorns and twisting it together into the shape of a crown and shoving it onto the head of your creator. Imagine yourself laughing at him as he bleeds. Thinking that way, I think, can deepen your hatred for your sin. Because dear brother, sister, friend, whether you realize it or not, that is what your sin has done. That is what my sin has done. All of it. All of it. But it does more than that. If we imagine ourselves there and see ourselves inflicting this pain on Jesus, it will deepen our hatred for our sin, but it can also deepen your love for your Savior. The suffering of King Jesus reveals the depths of human sin, but it also reveals the heights of God's grace. Let's answer that second question this morning. Question number two, why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus suffer? When the Passion of the Christ was released, many were concerned because the film showed the facts of Jesus' death, but not the reasons for it. You can watch the entire film and know that Jesus suffered, 
but not necessarily know why Jesus suffered. In response to that concern, when the film came out in 2004, Pastor John Piper wrote a helpful book called The Passion of Jesus Christ, explaining 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. It's a phenomenal little book. I highly recommend it to you. We're not going to cover all 50 reasons this morning. Let's just consider four. Why did Jesus suffer this way? One reason Jesus suffered is to fulfill the scriptures. Look with me at verses 35 and 36. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. What's the point of this little comment about these soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes? Is it just to show how horrible and callous these soldiers were? They're playing games at the foot of the cross? Well, that's certainly true, but there's more going on here than meets the eye. A thousand years before Jesus was crucified, King David wrote a song. He wrote a song about his suffering, but even more about the suffering of the Messiah. And, and in that song, he mentions exactly what happens here at the foot of the cross. Listen to Psalm 22, 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Or consider the mockery from the crowd that Jesus endures in verses 39 to 43. The head wagging, even the words in verse 43 are an unmistakable allusion to Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. What's the lesson here? You can tell how much you value something by how much you're willing to suffer in order to accomplish it. Do you see what Jesus is doing here on the cross? He's suffering to fulfill every promise of the scriptures. Dear Christian, do you believe that this is a blood-bought Bible? Do you really believe that Jesus treasured this word enough to suffer in excruciating, unimaginable pains so that all of it would be fulfilled? Do we treasure God's word this way? Are you wandering from his word? Is it, is it old hat to you? Are you bored with it? I confess that I often am. So often I find in my own heart this temptation to think, oh, I've read it before. Do I really need more time in the Word of God? Dear Christian, yes, we do. Jesus bled and died for this. Do we act like we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Maybe you're in this room and you're not a Christian, and you're just looking for more evidence. Maybe you're hoping, you're holding out for some sign, something that will push you over the edge into belief. If that's you, dear friend, this morning, let me encourage you to be careful. 
I don't know your heart. I don't know if you're sincerely trying to believe or if you're just like the crowd mocking Jesus at the foot of the cross that say, God, let him come down from the cross and then I'll believe. Show me a sign, then I'll believe. Could it be that what you need, dear friend, is not another sign or another piece of evidence? You need to believe the evidence that you've already been given. Jesus suffered to fulfill the scriptures. Number two, Jesus suffered to ransom his people. Weeks before he endured the cross, Jesus clearly explained the purpose of his coming. He was going to die to ransom his people. Listen to Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' day, the word ransom was a word that was used to refer to, to buying someone's freedom. Somebody on the slave market, you pay a ransom payment to buy their freedom. So when Jesus says, I am going to die as a ransom, here's what he means. Apart from Christ, you're a slave. Every single one of us, we're slaves to sin. Apart from Jesus, that's who we are. That's how we are. And we cannot free ourselves. A price must be paid. And Jesus came and died on the cross. And that was the ransom price. That was the price to set you free, friend. You remember the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. The son demands his father's inheritance. Basically saying he wished that he was dead. He gets his money he goes and spends it all on riotous living, women, drinks, pleasure, whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, however he wants it, until the money runs out. And then he finds himself eating from the pig's sty. And he comes to his senses, and he realizes, I would be better off as a servant in dad's house than living like this. The whole point of this parable is that this son is he's an absolute disgrace. He's shameful. He deserves complete rejection. And this son starts walking back to his father, rehearsing his speech. I'm going to tell you, Dad, you know, I, I'm willing to be a servant in your home. He's got it all in his mind. And then a long way off, his dad sees him. And that day, the right thing for that father would do would be to make that son earn his way back. But do you know what the father does? He lifts up his robe, kind of a shameful thing to do in that culture, and he runs towards his son. Dear brother, sister, friend, on the cross, Jesus is running to you. He is willing to endure shame himself so that you can be forgiven. No matter how far gone you are, dear friend, I promise you this, there is more mercy in God than sin in you. That is glorious good news. He died to ransom his people. If you're not a Christian, we would invite you to trust in him today. 
to turn from your sins and trust in him today. And if you belong to him, you must remember that there is therefore now no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus because all the penalty was paid. Third reason why Jesus came to die, Jesus suffered to comfort us in our suffering. Everybody suffers, don't they? As Wesley says in The Princess Bride, life is pain. And anyone who tells you different is selling something. Without Jesus, your goal in life becomes to avoid suffering. Suffer as little as possible until I die. But if you belong to Jesus, you can find comfort and strength and perseverance in your suffering. If you're hurting Dear brother, sister, today, Jesus hurt more. Jesus knows your pain to the fullness. You do not come to a high priest who hears your suffering and says, I wish I knew how to relate with you. He knows. You might feel like there's no one in this room that can understand your pain. I promise you, Jesus can. He can. In Jesus, you have someone who knows your suffering. In Jesus, because of Jesus, you can have purpose in your suffering. Jesus' suffering accomplishes something. And you, Christian, when you suffer, it too will accomplish something. God will turn all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Your suffering is not wasted if you're in Christ. And your suffering is temporary. Because of Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, there's coming a day, as we sang about when we opened our service, when every tear will be wiped away and we will sing the hymn of heaven. And we will say, it was all worth it to be with this Jesus. And a final reason why Jesus suffered, and we could give many, many more. Jesus suffered to free us from the power of sin. Right, here's what I mean. When we talk about Jesus freeing us from the penalty of sin, that means Jesus paid your debt on the cross so that you can stand justified before God. What does it mean to say that Jesus frees you from the power of sin by his suffering? It means that you can grow in holiness to the point that sin has less of a luster in your heart. And the way by which you grow to hate your sin and love your Savior is not to graduate beyond the cross of Jesus, but to dive deeper into the cross of Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to what? To sanctify. That means to grow in holiness the people through his own blood. And notice what the text is saying. Jesus' blood, Jesus' suffering is the means by which you grow in holiness. Do you want to grow in holiness? Do you want to fight sin? Think a lot about the cross. You want to put that sin to death? Christian, think on the cross. Dive deeper into the cross. As we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to hear one way this works from a Puritan preacher named Jeremiah Burroughs. He said this, if you saw the knife that cut the throat of your dearest child, 
Would not your heart rise against that knife? Suppose you came to a table, and there was a knife laid at your plate. It was told to you that this is the knife that cut the throat of your child. Fathers, mothers, if you could still use that knife like any other knife, wouldn't someone say there was but little love to your child? So when there is a temptation come to any sin, this, your sin, is the knife that cut the throat of Christ, that pierced his sides, that was the cause of all his suffering, that made Christ to be a curse. Now, will you not look upon that as a cursed thing that made Christ to be a curse? Oh, with what detestation would a man or woman fling away such a knife? And with the the like detestation, it is required that you should renounce sin, for that was the cause of the death of Christ. As we come to the table in just a moment and see the bread and the cup, would you remember that your sin, my sin, caused his body to be bruised and his blood to be shed? Would you fight to remember that your sin is the knife that killed your Savior? And as you think on that, would you use that to motivate you to put that sin to death for the glory of your Savior? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and after that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. The bread that we take reminds us of Jesus' body wrecked beyond belief by the horrors of scourging and crucifixion. The cup reminds us of Jesus' blood shed without measure so that we could be forgiven. If you're in this room and you've not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and followed him through baptism as a believer, we would ask you to not take communion with us this morning. Dear friend, that is not because we think that we're better than you. We want you to receive Jesus himself, not a mere symbol that reminds us of Jesus. And since we believe that baptism is the first step of obedience as a believer, we would encourage you, don't take later steps like communion until you've taken that first step. If that's where you find yourself this morning, we'd love to talk about what your next steps should be. When we stand and sing in a moment, one of our pastors will be in the back at the white flag over there, ready and waiting to talk to you. If you're not ready to talk to someone about that today, you're welcome to remain in your seat when folks come to the table and take communion. Or if you prefer, you're also welcome to leave the service quietly if you'd like. There's going to be lots of movement as parents go to get their kiddos, so no one's going to be looking at you and judging you if you'd rather just dismiss yourself when we take communion. But if you're here as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to encourage you to begin preparing your heart now to take communion together. Think about the depths of your sin. That your sin was so bad that Jesus had to die for you. But don't stop there, Christian. Think about the heights of God's mercy. That God is so good that Jesus was glad to die for you. Would you pray with me? Father.